welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and today we're going to have a really spectacular show with a longtime friend uh, of me personally and Peterson's Bowhunting, one of the nation's foremost experts on uh, deer, uh, wildlife management, and, and killing all kinds of critters. I hope that's not too much flattery for you, sir, but I have on the line with me Dr. Grant Woods, the host of Growing Deer TV. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. Christian, always great to visit with you. You know, it's been a little bit since I've had you on the show, and uh, I apologize for that, but I always enjoy the the chance to catch up with you. And I guess my first question, as it's been for most of my guests here over this last little bit, is how is the Woods family dealing with the uh, coronavirus quarantine? You know, it's been good for me and my family. We're blessed to live on some property and my oldest daughter's home from college doing online classes. My youngest daughter's a high school senior finishing high school with online classes. That's a little unique for her because I got to admit I was skipping the last part of my high school year going turkey hunting and catching white bass all the time. So fortunately, she's more disciplined than me. She's studying and, and doing the things she needs to do. But man, we're, we're together as a family and we're out on the property and we're turkey. It's turkey season in Missouri. We're turkey hunting. We're yeah, I got to tell you, it's it's really good for us. It's it, I'm not trying to just you know paint a rosy picture here, but the family's together. I'm family oriented. We're getting stuff done on the farm. We're you know they're helping me. I'm, I'm you know they're involved in. We just did a prescribed fire together, and actually I just tagged a turkey in a part of the woods that my daughter was lighting. She she burned that portion of the woods while I was on the other side. So I, you know it's just a good feeling. Yeah, we're doing good. Well, that's awesome, man, and um, I'm glad to hear you're doing well. I, I was actually uh, wanted to ask you one more question about all this. Is you know, as you have been very, um, you know, open about sharing, you know, you've had some health issues over the years. You've had a, a couple of kidney transplants, and I was just wondering if this virus is more concerning to you than it might be to others. Uh, seems like there's a real wide variety. You ask a hundred people what they think about this thing, and you get a hundred different opinions. What's uh, your take on on all this? And have you been, you know, taking extra precautions just because you feel like there might be some added risk for you? Yeah, uh, I don't mind sharing. Oh, I had a, a, a my first transplant. My oldest sister donated me a kidney twenty, I guess twenty seven years ago now. And then Raleigh, my oldest daughter, my my daughter in college, donated me a kidney two years ago. Literally saved my life. It was getting kind of kind of skinny there, and I feel great now. Actually, my kidney function right now is better than when I was a junior in college. So I mean, I I feel better. I'm shooting my bow better. I'm I'm running on clean blood and things are great right now. I feel really, really good. Um, so I do have a little bit of a suppressed immune system for listeners that don't know anyone that receives a, an organ, a, a donated organ, that organ is never part of their body. Even though it's from my daughter, my body will never accept it. So I have to take some medicines every day to kind of suppress my immune system. So I won't reject that organ. They're called immunosuppressant medications. 
so yeah, the docs tell me, and they've always told me this, you know, don't be around shaking hands or bro hugs. You know, I speak at some shows and stuff and very gracious hunters that watch growing deer want to come up and give me a bro hug. And I kind of back off a little bit and, and, uh, but you know, just common sense. I'm washing my hands and I'm working on the ranch here. And yeah, life's good. Uh, life is good. And I, I feel good. I feel so much better. I, I live in the Ozark mountains for those that don't know it's steep. They're not, you know, 10,000 feet tall, but they're really steep and rocky. So when you're carrying fire gear uphill, it's, I tell everyone it's great training for elk hunting and I'm able to do it so much better than I was before my daughter gave me this gift of life. Yeah, it's absolutely awesome. I'm so glad to hear you're feeling well. And I don't know if it was a recent episode where you came back around on it or if I just happened to watch one of your older videos, but you had some information about, you know, what what she had done and the surgeries that you guys had had and stuff. And honestly, it brought a tear to my eye, man. It was just awesome. And uh, it's just so great the way that, you know, the Lord was able to provide for your need through your daughter. And uh, uh, selfishly, I'm, I'm, you know, she probably feels the same way because she wanted her dad around, but I want Grant Woods around for a good long while yet because you still have a lot to teach us. So with that in mind, let's pivot to talking about a little bit of spring turkey hunting. You mentioned that you killed a, a bird there on your place just the other day, and uh, congratulations to you on that. I, I'd be lying, Grant, if I said I wasn't a little bit jealous because I was supposed to be in Ohio this past weekend with my younger son, Timmy, who's 14. Uh, the last two years, we've headed over there for the youth weekend, and he's tagged birds. So 2018 or in 2019, and this year, of course, we weren't able to go because Ohio was one of a number of states that decided to stop selling non-resident uh, turkey tags this spring. So I've had to cancel some of my plans. I don't know if you have uh, as well, but you had some interesting thoughts about the impact of these closures or having both on uh, non-resident and resident hunters in some of these states. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I was, I, I, I got to, I did hunt Florida in Florida's very Southern season, I think is the earliest in the States. And then we were down there March 7th or 8th, or that Saturday was and, and hunted and it was awesome hunt. We all tagged out and just, I mean, the, it was just, you know, the sunny days and working great. And, and it was just an awesome Turkey hunt. And then we grabbed our bows and chased hogs in the afternoon. So we, we brought home a lot of meat from that one. Then I was supposed to go to Kentucky and they, they disallowed non-resident hunters in Kansas, the same thing. So yeah, I'm glad to be able to hunt here at the farm. Um, but there is some big impacts and a couple of my buddies that are researchers that really play with stats and numbers a lot, do some great work, uh, have, have just published a paper and it's shocking. You know, I, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, all these non-resident closers, where there's going to be a bunch of uh, old birds next year. It's going to be some great hunting next year. And they said, no, 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 no. And this is shocking, folks, but some states, mainly southern states, where their season's over or almost closed, and they have some numbers, the harvest is up 20, 30, 40%. I mean, it's shocking because so many guys are not working they're going out to the wildlife management area. They're going to their buddy's farm or whatever. And they're just spending way more days turkey hunting. So even though non-residents may not be allowed in these states, there's way more hunter days. 
and they're tagging way more turkeys. And that sounds great. And I like to tag turkeys. I like to eat turkeys. But in a lot of these states, in a lot of states in America, turkey populations are way down 20, 30, 40%. I mean, Kansas is reducing the amount of tags and, you know, states are reducing tags or reducing the dates you can hunt or other restrictions. And no one really knows for certain what's causing these big declines in turkey populations. But when you have a big decline and then a big harvest, and not only a harvest, I mean, that's one thing, but that's taking males and one gobbler can breed a lot of females, so a lot of hens. But we got so many people out in the woods are busting hens off nests and trampling by nests and alerting turkeys and kind of interrupting the social hierarchy of, of turkeys out there that there's some real concern that COVID may have a big impact on turkey populations due to the amount of time folks are spending in the woods, so which is concerning. I mean, turkey populations are kind of a little bit fragile. Now, you know, we got deer everywhere. We got a whole bunch of deer everywhere. Doe harvest has been down almost 20% two years in a row nationwide. But on on turkeys, those populations were low, and, and they're probably going to be a lot lower next year. So what are these states that you mentioned? Can you think of any particular states that you could highlight that are included in these numbers that are coming out? Oh, yeah, yeah. Georgia's harvest is way up. Mississippi's harvest is way up. Alabama's harvest is up. And all of those have reported, done you know, based on research, not just hunter surveys or something, that those populations are down. Kansas population is way down. Uh, and of course they have restricted non-residents and reduced limits in most of the state from two birds to one. Uh, and I can name more and more and more Texas, uh, South Texas turkey population is way, way, way down. Uh, some of the ranches I would normally hunt are not allowing turkey hunting on their own. It's not the state. They're saying, Hey boys, we don't have near the turkeys we used to have. And, and, and we're shutting this down. And, and I got to tell you, like I hunt a, 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 I hog hunt, don't deer hunt. I go hog hunting with a buddy down South Texas. He has a lease on a large ranch and I can't afford to deer hunt, but I, I love to go down there and chase hogs with my boat. And I always see a ton of turkeys, ton, you know, like 50 here, hundred there. And this year I saw one turkey and all the time I was down there hog hunting. So it's, there's some major clients. And I got to tell you one thing that's certainly a factor. I'm not saying it's the only factor. Please don't send me all the hate mail. I get hate mail every time I talk about this, but a factor is the amount of predators and the more fragmented the habitat is, it favors raccoons and possums. And, and of course, I think a lot of people know this, but trap, lo, trapping license sales, people that buy a fur bear permit or a trapping permit, it's called different things in different states, are way down. I've actually published this. The graph is shocking. And if you inverse that graph, so you, you know, you take the inverse of of number of trapping licenses sold and pair it with turkey harvest. I did this with real data from Missouri. It's almost a mirror image. So I took the rain data, the rain during May, you know, nesting month, April and May. I took the rain and, you know, it'd go high and it'd be a drought and it'd go high and be a drought because everyone says, oh, it's the rain, it's the rain, it's climate change messing up turkeys. And I took that and there was no relationship. We'd have flood years, and the next year there'd be a big harvest and we'd have a dry year and next year the harvest would go down, blah, 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 blah. We looked at it several ways. I'm giving a 30,000 foot view. And then we looked at 
uh, Fur Bears license sales in Missouri, and Missouri does every year scent post surveys in every county throughout the state. They put scent post up, and it's actually a post, and they put lime powder down so predators will step in there and leave a footprint. Think about like chalk on a baseball field. You know, the white lines on a football or baseball field on natural grass, you leave a footprint real easy. They put that substance and they put a scent on there that attracts all predators. There's no trap or anything. So coons, foxes, bobcats, coyotes, domestic dogs, feral cats, all these things come there, right? And they've been doing this for decades. And the data clearly, and I'm saying it's accurate, but it's a great indicator. The data clearly shows this massively upward trend. Well, it makes sense. License sales are down. Trap sales are down. Coon hunting numbers are down. You know, guys don't just throw out their dogs and let it run three counties away like we did not as a boy because that's not socially acceptable. Uh, so there's raccoons everywhere. So we did some numbers here at our property. And we took the, the amount of coons we caught this last year and divided by the acreage, and we removed a raccoon every 18 acres. And I'm blessed, as you know, Christian, I live on a pretty large property, a couple thousand acres. And we removed a coon every 18 acres. And you think about that, off a couple of thousand acres, and you don't catch them all, we still see raccoons on our trail cameras all the time. We removed a raccoon every 18 acres. Now, a turkey hen will start laying eggs. So let's just say that's day one. She lays the first egg and they lay an average of 10. Okay. So that's 10 days. And then she starts incubating and that's 28 days. And then it's 14 days before poults can fly and get off the ground. They spend every night on the ground until they're about 14 days old. So from the first egg until the poults can roost in a tree, this isn't counting avian predators now. That's 52 days on the ground. And if you've ever turkey hunted during the rain, you know how nasty turkey smells. I mean, I mean, I've killed some in the rain. You carry them out. It's horrible. You can't really stand to have them on your shoulder. And so you got a wet, it's called the wet hen theory. This is actually published by Mississippi State University. You've got that hen on the ground a lot of time or even 24 hours a day, been on this part of the breeding season there, the nesting season, for many days. And it rains once during that time and you remove a raccoon every 18 acres, all that raccoon has to do is get, you know, I don't pick a number, 100 yards or so, downwind of that nest, and that nest is gone. It's not going, oh, there's a bunch of eggs, but I just ate some. I'm passing that up. That never happens in a raccoon's life, and that's just raccoons, not to mention opossums, which are huge nest predators. Skunks love eggs. Skunks love eggs. Of course, coyotes, foxes. Domestic dogs are horrible on turkey nest. So the chances of a turkey surviving nesting with these high predator numbers is very slim. And on our place, we've been heavily trapping now for six years. I mean, without mercy, when tra- our trapping season opens November 15th, this is how serious I'm about, folks, during the rut, November 15th. And we're putting out coon traps midday like crazy, like crazy. So last year we removed 100 and I think it was 13, 113 year before 86 actually purchased more traps in between. And, and I have a very good Turkey population. It's, it's very huntable. It's fun. We're doing well, but it's an every year process because none of my neighbors trap. And so what we've seen, this is real data. Our body weights of predators are declining 
And we've switched to about an 80-20 male-to-female ratio in our catch. We're removing a lot of the resident predators. And yearling males of predators always disperse. So come about you know, July, we, we, we just trap like crazy. Hopefully get them down enough to get through the nesting season. And then they start dispersing before the next breeding season and fill that void back up. So you have to trap every year to make a difference. It's not once and done, but we are making a difference. And there's many researchers showing the same thing. And, and the same thing with waterfowl. DU and Delta Waterfowl have both published research where they go into these mallard nesting areas and remove fox, raccoon, possum, skunk, and see a massive increase in nest survival. So I want to add one last thing. In Missouri, uh, they do statewide surveys, gobbling surveys, nest surveys, whatever. And we're always way ahead. The last few years we've been trapping hard, we're way ahead of the state average. So clearly for us anyway, trapping works. Trapping works. And by the way, we cooked some coon this year, and it's mighty tasty. Don't don't hesitate to skin those coons out and, and dine on them because it was really good. Barbecue raccoon is really good. So you talked about removing like 118 or whatever you said. Was that just raccoons or all predators? Raccoon and opossum. Gotcha. Now, what do you do? That's about, what we target. Do you catch coyotes, foxes, skunks, that sort of thing? And do you get rid of them as well? We catch the occasional skunk. We don't set for skunks. Uh, and, and if I can share a tip, when you're dispatching a skunk, skunk, Use a solid point 22. Everyone uses 22. Don't use a hollow point because it will expand. And, and, and when it expands, the skunk will feel it, just being really honest, and it's really likely to spray. But if you use a solid point, and this goes right into archery, it just zips right through there like a sharp broadhead. They don't even know it because skunks don't know what guns are. People think about animals like humans. I mean, if I got weaned in the pinky with a 22, I'd be laying on the ground, flailing and yelling for someone to take me to the hospital. Uh, but but animals don't know that. They don't think like humans. They're not in our world. So if you make a lung shot with a solid point twenty two, the skunk just sits there. I'm not being crude at all. And it will pass really quickly, right? You just deflated both lungs. And I never have them spray. If you try to dispatch it with a head shot, it will spray almost 100% of the time. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah. so, so trapping, if you care about turkey hunting, uh, trapping is potentially the one of the best things you can do to improve the turkey hunting in your area. So that's something for all of yeah, us to and, think and about. Yeah, improve the habitat. Yeah, and improve the habitat, right? you got to have nesting habitat. We talked offline, but, you know, just when we were in our visit, and, you know, if a guy's got 40 acres, he wants to have better deer hunting. And in forested countries like where I am here in the Ozark Mountains or in a lot of Pennsylvania, you know, you can't, you're not, you're not, I'm not next to any big corn or soybean farms or anything like that. I have some food plots. I can open up that forest canopy and get some sunlight down. And that is so much better for turkeys and deer. These closed canopy forests that we've allowed to happen throughout North America is is brutal on our many wildlife populations i mean just brutal and by the way one more thing you got me on my podium today you got me preaching I was, here today. i was gonna say man yeah i mean dr grant woods is preaching today i can barely get an amen in here so hey i'm not gonna stand we, in your way brother you just you bring it we we talked about songbirds and the tropical migrant songbirds and i'm into that and how, oh, it's horrible. The South Americans are cutting the rainforest, which, you know, it is. I'm, I'm all about good stewardship anywhere on the planet. And then 
we have all these massive closed canopy forests in America, which is favorable for some birds and not for most. And like here where I live in Missouri, 27 of these critical songbirds nest zero to five feet off the ground. And we got a raccoon every 18 acres. He's not just eating turkey eggs. He's out there eating these neotropical songbird eggs too. So, and, and raccoon populations are high. Anyone that runs a trail camera knows how high raccoon populations are. So we've just got some stuff out of balance. We, we you know, we got to, we got to go back to balance here. And I use this all the time. I used to teach out at Yellowstone park uh, uh, the, in the naturalist program there. I go out there in the summer and, and almost made enough money to cover my living expenses. The reward was just being in Yellowstone all summer. And there was a sign right in front of the park, the South interest that says they estimate about 30,000 native Americans lived in the Yellowstone area, at least a portion of the year. Some migrated out like the elk, some stayed by the hot springs. And they talk about how natural it is. Well, it's not natural. There were 30,000 people hunting in there, right? I mean, mama wants some new moxins. Daddy's going out there and tagging something. Uh, it's when, when we want natural, we, we use this word natural, but like we use love, we don't understand the meaning. If we're going to have natural, there's predation and there's balanced ecosystems and there's a lot of prescribed fire, a lot. We worry about ticks. Pennsylvania's worried about ticks, right? They're doing this big thing right now oh, to terrible. try to reintroduce prescribed I, I just, fire into the I, landscape. Yeah. I just pulled a tick off myself the other day. I was out doing some yard work and. Oh, no. You know what it was? I had gone shed hunting a couple Saturdays ago, Sundays ago, and, uh, yeah, pulled a tick off myself there that night. They're, they're, they're awful. Well, and, and, you know, turkey hunter going through the woods, kicking six inches of leaf litter or something like that, that is prime tick habitat. Prime. We know from the early explorers, like I've studied the early explorer journals a lot for here in, in, where I live in Missouri. And some came through, actually, from the English and the French trying to decide whether it's worth going to war over the Louisiana Purchase. And they were looking for natural resources, botanical, you know, ores, stuff they could mine. And they took really good notes. Well, I can't read the French notes, but I can read the King's English. You kind of stumble through it. And you can go to a library and request a copy of this, get a library loan, and read it for yourself. They talk about riding through the forest on horses. And they loved the Ozark Mountains because the forests were so open, and that was due to prescribed, not prescribed fire, wildfire, and Native Americans set fire, that they never had to dodge a limb, and, and it never knocked a hat off their head when they're riding through the timber. Well, we drive through the most timber stands in America now, unless it's really well managed, and it's so thick, you, could, you wouldn't even want to ride a horse through there. But when they were thin, there was vegetation, not leaves, there was vegetation below the forest. It was ideal turkey habitat ideal quail habitat, ideal deer habitat, and now we have all these high-graded closed canopy forests. Folks, get your chainsaw out. Get your hatchet out and a little bit of herbicide. Open up that canopy. Make the rest of the trees healthier so you have a marketable product to sell later on and have much better wildlife habitat. Man, you are in the pulpit today, doctor. Preach it. Preach it, Grant. I, I wanted to come back to something that you said earlier when you were talking about these turkey seasons and, and you know, of course, uh, the non-residents being shut out in a lot of states, which has impacted you and I. And uh, that has made me all the more eager 
for turkey season here in Pennsylvania. And uh, Pennsylvania has uh, kind of a system where, you know, there's one turkey tag that's included with your regular license and then you can buy a second turkey tag if you want the opportunity to tag a second spring gobbler, but you've got to purchase that before opening day or you're out of luck. So, uh, I was actually thinking, you, you know, it's funny you talked about how much higher the harvest is um, in some of these southern states. And we have quite a few turkey hunters here in Pennsylvania, over like 230,000, mm-hmm. I think, which is uh, Matt Moret, who works with the Game Commission. Now, he just told me the other day, supposedly we have more turkey hunters here in Pennsylvania than anywhere. And I was going to go ahead and buy that second spring tag because this is all the turkey hunting I have for this spring grant is right here in Pennsylvania. So uh, I may be playing right into the, I I don't know if you're, you know, if I should take what we discussed as a, should I feel guilty about getting that second tag and, and, and wanting to enjoy my season or, you know, Sometimes I don't even fill the first one because turkey hunting is also pretty tough here in Pennsylvania. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting because as you were talking about some of those numbers coming out of those southern states here, I'm thinking, yeah, because I was going to get that second tag. And I've been telling myself the same thing that a lot of guys probably have been telling themselves, which is, hey, buddy, when turkey season finally gets here, you better believe we're going to get up at four o'clock every morning and, and head out to the woods because we've been cooped up in the basement for a month and we need need something to do and turkey hunting is going to be where it's at this spring yeah i mean i i think it's that and just guys have a lot of time at home they want to get outside which is healthy while telling people hey get outside enjoy wildlife enjoy the outdoors and that message has been broadcast by many many individuals and companies well the most southern boys they took it to heart they got outside and and the boys are putting some turkeys on the ground and, you know, which is awesome. They're feeding their family. Tracy's getting ready to cook the turkey I harvested uh, Monday this afternoon, and, and it's all good. But I think the greater mission here is taking care of those turkey populations. So you're, to your question, boy, if you hunt in an area that has a really healthy population, man, yeah, enjoy that second tag. That's why the state offers that. If you're in an area where you go, boy, i got to really work hard to hear a turkey, you may not want to be busting that second tom. Uh, you know, it's, I think that's an individual choice and an individual area. So many Missouri, Missouri has been the leading turkey state forever. They just got off to a great start, had a really successful turkey restocking program, and our populations are way down too. Now, I again, so I manage my property for wildlife. I mean, I'm, you know, I have good brood habitat, good nesting habitat. I'm removing predators, and we have a, a fun turkey population, but. For the most part, guys were going up to northern Missouri, big ag country, and there used to just be turkeys everywhere, and raccoon hides were 20 to $40 a piece. When I was in high school, if you're not familiar with this, folks, if you've never trapped or skinned or sold hides, I'm 59 years old. I was in high school during the late 70s. I graduated high school, barely, I might add, in 1979. An extra-large raccoon hide Green. Green means you haven't primed it or anything like that. Brought you $40. If you were on a date and you saw a raccoon ran over on the county highway and it looked pretty fresh, you stopped, threw it in the trunk, and then took it to the fur buyer later because that's $40, man. I mean, that was a lot of money. Now, this last year, hear me clearly, folks, raccoon hides are 2 and $3. If you got really good hide, it was $4. 
you can't afford to buy traps and gas and take time off work. It has to be sportsmen going out there to help control these populations. I'm not wanting to eliminate them. I want to find a balance. I want to see quail. I want to hear quail, turkeys, songbirds. We can't let these, it's like snow goose, snow geese, man. I mean, you know, they fly over by the gazillions. They've opened up limits. Uh, we need to start doing the same with predators. We just can't have this imbalanced population and we have to manage it. We have too big a footprint on the planet to say, Oh, it'll take care of itself. This is not Walt Disney. This is reality. And, and it's up to us sportsmen that, that we need to accept responsibility of managing all populations, not just what some people consider the game populations, and I'm not want to throw raccoons or coyotes on the bus or awesome game, but under normal sport hunting practices, not enough of them are harvested to impact population. So we have to trap intentionally with the desire to find a balance of these populations. Well, let's with that shift gears a little bit and pivot from talking about turkeys and, and habitat management strategies that impact turkeys to whitetail deer, which of course is uh, your bread and butter. You probably, uh, not probably, you're absolutely known first and foremost for your work with deer and deer hunting and deer habitat management. And of course, uh, while lots of people, you know, interact with you through the Growing Deer TV. Uh, you started uh, a long time ago and a long before you had um, that web show with um, management consulting. Uh, and you still do quite a bit of that with, with uh, clients from around the country, helping people to better manage their properties for, uh, as you've uh, talked about throughout the episode today, wildlife in general and a whole host of species. But of course, it would be uh, dishonest to think that the at least the initial impetus for most of us and probably most of your clients is uh, the the white-tailed deer and the desire to mm -hmm. have you know a better a better deer herd and bigger bucks, right? More more antlers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On, on the head. So so with that, um, you know, talk to me about you know how much of your thought even during this time of the year when you're out turkey hunting, uh, you're doing prescribed fire, other things. How much of your thought process revolves around on deer uh, right now, and what are some things that the listeners can be thinking about as they're turkey hunting, as they're out and about in their hunting areas to prepare for deer season, or maybe to get some ideas of things that they can do throughout the, the spring and summer to enhance uh, you know, their habitat for uh, a potentially more productive deer season this fall? Yeah, you're absolutely correct on all that. I mean, you know what? We've done a lot of prescribed fire this spring, and I'm always watching for antlers and rubs and scrapes and deer trails. I mean, that, that's just a constant, and I, I use that data. I mean, you know, if I find a shed that tells me a, a buck is in that area, uh, or if I find a big deer trail, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm often prone to walk down it as long as the fire is safe and kind of figure out where it's going or where it's coming from or a rub line or scrapes or any of those things. Uh, but I've learned through the years, you know, as you said, we all start, we learn. I used to just find sign. And as an example, boy, I'd, 
I'd find these food plots on public land. They'd just be covered in scat. Oh, man, I, I've got this now. I've got this figured out. And I'd hang my stand and would not see a deer. And some pretty heavily hunted public land. And then I realized, well, just because I found a lot of sign doesn't mean deer are there during daylight hours. And I've learned that where you find the biggest clump of sign, if you just find a huge amount of sign, and this is odd to a lot of people, you may want to think twice before hunting there because if deer are spending a huge amount of time in one area and they're leaving a lot of scat or sign, then they're really comfortable there. And it's probably at night, especially in areas that have a lot of hunting pressure. And I, I really refocus my hunting through the years on travel corridors in between a lot of sign. Where can I see a deer, specifically a buck during daylight hours? And that's rarely where there's just a huge amount of sign. So I look for sign to help me pattern where deer are during daylight hours. So if I, turkey hunting is a great time, man. You're, you're going to just like me doing prescribed fire. You're likely to find a shed or some old scrapes or rubs or fence crossings or, you know, all the, all the sign. And then I need, I want everyone to back day and think, Oh, well, that, that farm over there left some corn stand and this really heavy trail that's not too fresh right now was probably going through February and March or something to eat that standing corn. And so when I look at sign, I evaluate two things right off the bat, like a shed. That shed tells me a buck is in the area and I'm in his home range, but I don't know which portion of his home range. Is that winter, spring, summer, fall? Is that rut, pre-rut? And even if the home range is, you know, just, gosh, a square mile, a relatively small home range, deer will use different parts of that. They don't use it all. And great research out of, out of Penn State there, the, the deer study group with Dwayne. I went to school with Dwayne, Dwayne Deathball, great researcher, great, great researcher. He's putting out some awesome stuff. He shows that, you know, he has these bucks that have GPS collars and are using different areas at different times of the year. So evaluate the sign you find based on what time of year it was likely left and how that relates to when you're going to hunt. Maybe your job, maybe you play baseball and you don't get to really hunt, you know, to, until the rut or a late season. So you want to find sign that applies to that time of year. So pair findings, the short story here is pair sign. When you find sign, pair that or analyze what time of year was that left and how does that relate to when I can hunt. I think that something that you said there that is really applicable for all of us and something that I see a lot in my own hunting is that when you find a lot of sign that that's not necessarily the place that you want to hunt. And I, I specifically, as you were talking about that, I was thinking of a particular area that I have on, on one of the farms where I hunt where other than maybe um, a couple of rubs, you're not likely to find much deer sign at all, but it's kind of a classic funnel where there's some, some ag fields and then there's a, some woods that kind of bottleneck in between some fields there. It's just a, it's just a travel corridor in between, mm -hmm. you know, some feeding areas and some bedding areas. And I won't even hunt that spot uh, early in the season. Not that you won't see some deer, but you're probably not going to see very many. And uh, even in the rut, you're not going to see a ton of deer, but it's just that during the rut, it's a really good spot because 
the deer that you do see is likely or more likely to be one of the bucks that you want to shoot because deer use that as a way to kind of get uh, up and down that hillside and and uh, access some different areas where does are likely to be found. And so, yeah, there's not a lot of sign there. And again, it's it's one of those spots where you know, especially early in the season, you know, like from depending on when your season opens, you know, whether it's late September or all the way through towards the end of October, you could sit there probably a lot of mornings and maybe see a, a doe or two, you know, filter through there or a buck or two just kind of moseying around. But it can be really good, you know, for a period of time during the rut. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just, again, think about what the deer are doing you know where they're spending most of their time is not necessarily the easiest place to kill them because we all know the challenges you know getting right into a, a buck's bedroom it can be difficult getting right on top of a bunch of deer when they're in a food plot or an ag field feeding can be difficult either getting in or getting out and uh catching yes. in, between, yes. in, in between is is great you know yeah given given the choice i will almost always take that travel corridor or pinch point versus a destination either bedding or feeding almost always i mean there's, there's always exceptions right i mean it's wicked dry it hadn't rained in 40 days i'm finding me a water source or hunting a trail going to a water source or something like that uh, but as a general rule i would much rather hunt travel corridors morning and afternoon than destinations Let's talk a little bit about food plots, Grant, because I think that, you know, certainly I do. And I think I think most people probably think a little bit about food plots when your name comes up, because you do a lot. of kind of think like, what would be my my classic Grant Woods food plot story? It's probably you with some eagle forage soybeans and some kind of a solar powered fence that you put up and talking about how you, you know, keep that kind of locked up all year and then beans are like three, four feet off the ground. And then you open up a section, you know, that's, I've seen that several times on your show, but uh, that, that might not be, you know, as accessible for the average guy, but there are probably elements of that and a whole lot of other things that we can do, especially those of us who aren't really doing anything anything with food plots, you got to start somewhere. So why don't you approach it from that standpoint? Take a guy who, you know, has a little bit of land or he's got permission to hunt on some ground. He's never really done anything with food plots. Here we are in the spring. Uh, what's the timing and what's the strategy that you would recommend to somebody like, hey, what can I do this year? Maybe I've got more time on my hands because of this coronavirus and uh, maybe this is the year I go ahead and try and do some kind of a food plot project. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I love simple. I do a lot of things for research, but I love simple. And one of my favorite techniques is grab a, you know, a, a rake or a backpack blower and go out in the timber and find an area where sun is reaching the floor at least half the day. And oftentimes this may be where a great big tree has died, got struck by lightning or something, or a pond has went dry, doesn't hold water anymore. Any of these type places that are getting at least a half a day's sun. And I take a backpack blower and blow all the leaves and duff out. And if there's a bunch of saplings, maybe I hack and squirt with glyphosate to kill them or just cut them off. If problem is cutting saplings, they grow back faster than the food plot crop. But you know, I'm just getting sun down. 
And heck, a lot of times there'd be an old log. Like if I do it where a big tree died, there's a log laying right through the middle, which is awesome because then I can place my stand where deer are bottlenecking around that log to get the foliage on the other side. Uh, but I'm just looking for sunlight, and I, I move the forest debris back, sticks, you know, leaves, stuff like that, and broadcast this time of year. Right now it's perfect. Uh, it's clover. Just, you know, there's, there's a gazillion varieties of clover I have found through the years, I used to buy more perennial clover, and now I'm almost exclusive annual clover. There's lots of great annual clover varieties. And just broadcast it out there, and you don't need much nitrogen, which is clover makes its own nitrogen, takes it out of the air. So little bag of P and K, and you may not even use anything. And just put some clover in there, and it makes an awesome turkey strut area, folks. And these little openings with some clover, I promise you turkeys will use them. And this is, a t- again, you know, a hand rake and a bag of clover and a little way to broadcast it. And I've even gone as cheap as poking some holes in the bottom of a plastic bag and just slinging the bag around, just spreading the clover that way, just slinging it around. I mean, anyway, you can get pretty even distribution of clover seed works. Just throwing it in your hand doesn't work too well. It's always clumpy. It's too many seeds in one place and not enough in another. And then in the fall, I mean that's so awesome for right now. And that clover, I was going to say, so so it, let me inter- let me interrupt you for a second. Yeah. When are you when are you doing this clover planting? Right now is that is this the time right now, for, for I, clover? I, yeah, yeah, spring and, when there's plenty of moisture. You, clover, if you plant in the fall, probably won't get big enough to be much of an attraction. Clover kind of creeps and then it leaps later, so it's a little slow to start. Most most forms of clover start pretty slow, but. I like to do it now, let it get some roots down early so it can survive the summer drought if you have a droughty situation. And then come on strong. This is going to be especially good for early season bow hunting. It's frost and cold weather and acorns are going to fall. Deer are going to abandon it. It's not going to be really strong in most areas mid and late season, but early season can be such an attraction. And then also, if you got a good stand of clover, it's keeping most weeds at bay. So you can go in there in the fall, same thing. That clover has made a bunch of nitrogen and broadcast, uh, you know, any good fall blend. I use Eagles Fall Buffalo blend, but there's all kind. And I like a blend in the fall. I really want to blend a poly species or many different species. And probably got a brassica and a small grain like cereal rye or wheat and maybe an annual clover some stuff like that in there. And and that's because all these different plants become palatable at different times throughout the fall. So you've got something attracting deer early season, mid season and late season. Now and, talk to, and the talk, clover, if you've got any. Tell me a little bit ahead, about the clover. You mentioned annual versus perennial. Perennial seems to have always been very popular because the, at least the marketing, I don't know if it works as well in practice as it does in theory, but with perennial that you could get several years out of a stand of clover before you had to replant. But you, you mentioned that you really like the annual clovers. Talk to me about sort of the characteristics that are different between an annual clover and a perennial. And what is it about that annual clover that's caused you to gravitate in that direction? Yeah, two things. Yeah, great question. So perennials were marketed, and if you're a really good manager, I've had perennial clover stands last 11 years, but in hindsight, I spent so much on fertilizer and weed control and blah, 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 and I'm very budget conscious, and now I plant a really strong annual. Uh, there's several. Uh, I helped design one. It's, it's called the 
the five from Eagle Seed, and it's five different annuals. They're just really strong, some that mature earlier, some that are later. And with annuals, I pretty much plant it and I'm done. There's no weed control because an annual plant, think of a tomato or watermelon or whatever. Man, they put everything they got into that one year. And then they make seed and die. So they grow more tons than a perennial. They're They're less expensive and they grow really rapidly. And I'm usually not worried about weed control because they're just really aggressive. They grow really aggressive. So, you know, if you're, I mean, if you got the tractor and the sprayer and all the equipment and you're managing 40 acres of food plots, perennial clover may be a good tool for you. If you're going out in the woods, go annual every time, every time. You'll be happy. Yeah, I'm glad you're, I asked that. Safe. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. That's good. That's good to know. And um, yeah, I think that's that's important. So so right now you're doing clover, and then you talked about later on. Uh, what's your later planting window of opportunity if you're doing clover I, now? I want to. I want to back up just a second if we can, and and I say this with caution, folks. Please use you know use some common sense here. But like the other day, I, I said I do a lot. Of, drive fire. Well, I had just taken a, a backpack blower and blown around an area. And in that area was a little food plot. And because it's in the timber, when the leaves start coming off the trees, man, that thing always fills up at leaves. I mean, it grows great. We kill deer there and then it fills up at leaves. And then you just take a backpack blower and make a really safe fire line. A fire line means there's no fuel. You just blow all the leaves out of the way back in the timber. And then instead of raking and blowing, I just burn the leaves off. And here's why. When you burn them, the ash stays right there. The leaves have nutrients in them. Instead of blowing that nutrient off my food plot, I just burned them. And I mean, I burned one day and I went back the next day, right before rain, my daughter and I, and broadcast seed. It's already starting to germinate. So I, I, that was my fertilizer. I burned those leaves right there on the site. Just, to, you know, I'm talking this was an eighth acre. I got a tree stand on the side. It's just a little eight, eighth acre kill plot. And it's, it's in the timber, so it fills up with leaves after deer season every year. Just fills up with leaves, and, so how, and I just blew a line, blew how, a line uh, around there. Yeah, how how wide of a bare dirt do you need to be safe? You know, if it's if the leaves are the only thing burning in the area, and you got a ten foot fire, and you're not doing it when the wind's gusting twenty miles an hour, you know, you got again, you got a little common sense. It's early in the morning, the wind's not picked up. You can burn, just blow about a 10 foot, five to 10 foot line around there. It can't have any gaps, right? Solomon taught us fire is never satisfied. You know, it's not going out till it's out of fuel or out of oxygen. So I just burn, I blow a complete circle in the timber around there. And then I, I use a real easy fire just, and I'm doing a backing fire. So if the wind is blowing, let's say from the West, I started on the East and it kind of slowly backs into the wind. And then I broadcast, I wait a day and I broadcast my seed right in those ashes and there's my fertilizer. Yeah, what, uh, I've seen you do it, but I do actually want to ask what, uh, you carry some kind of a little can or device to start your fire. What, uh, what do you actually use to, to, um, ignite your fires out there in the woods? Yeah, in a little fire, like we're talking, you just use matches. I've seen people go, you know, go store and buy the $2 and 49 cents butane torch you know like you got on your workbench or something matches work fine and a little eighth acre fire it's no big deal for the big prescribed fires we do it's called a drip torch and at any good forestry cascade forestry supply any of those sell these and you this is really 
you have to really pay attention to the rules here, folks. You want two-thirds diesel, one-third gas, never the other way. If you, if you get that turnaround due the other way, you're carrying a bomb. And when the flame gets all that gas, you and some buddies will likely be very hurt. But two-thirds diesel, one-third gas mixed up well. Diesel, of course, you know, it's not a bomb. It's not have a little vapor like gasoline does. And then it goes through a, a complete loop in the spout coming out, so it can't run back in. The flame can't get back into the can. The problem with all gas is it's so volatile. It makes so much vapor that it would come out, and that whole thing would ignite and blow shrapnel everywhere. So it's two-thirds diesel, one-third gasoline. Never more gas than that. Well, it's uh, good to know that, too, so I don't blow myself up. Although I probably won't be doing anything that large scale. So probably like you said, a butane torch off your workbench works really well for a small, a small fire. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so why don't we, why don't we shift for the last segment? We've talked a lot about habitat management, which is great. And we've talked about turkeys and deer and how that can benefit both of those species and we've talked some about predator trapping let's wrap up with this let's talk some some archery and i know that you are a prime shooter and i will say this i i actually have recently got my hands on one of the new uh, prime black series bows i've got a black one uh Mm-hmm. Really, really have been enjoying that. I tend to like the shorter axle-to-axle bows and um, just for the maneuverability, and they're a little lighter. Obviously, the longer you want to make the riser, the bow is going to get a little mm-hmm. heavier every inch of mm-hmm. metal that you add there. But talk to me about your 2020 bow setup, Grant. Which of those new Black Series bows did you gravitate toward? And uh, just tell me a little bit about um, you know what you've been uh, doing in terms of your set up the accessories that you've got on there the shooting how you like this year's lineup man i have the five the black five and i love it and i'm not saying that because i work with prime i'm just telling you i've you know i've been an archer since i was a kid literally and i i say this very openly very openly but every everyone shoots a little different their body shapes different all that get a bow that really works and fits for you the prime black fits me like a glove and I sh- I'm shooting right now, literally better right now as I'm older, weaker, my vision's not as good than I ever have in my life. I mean, my form is good. So right now I'm doing a lot of this time of year. I do a lot of form practicing. I try to shoot about 50 shots a day. Uh, you know, I miss it. I'm up early turkey hunting or something. Daughters have something that night, but that's my goal. Shoot about 50 shots a day this time of year. And it's strictly on form. And, and then if I'm, if I'm really doing some other practicing, I'm shooting, you know, 27 yards, 32, I'm not at 20, 30, 40. Um, <clears throat> and the black, black for me, what it does for me, it, it just, my biggest problem in shooting, I have no problem pulling the bows back or any of that kind of thing. My biggest problem is staying on target when I go through my release, when I'm in that final stage of my shot and I'm in the release stage, staying on target. Cause I want to drift really bad. And the prime just sets in my hand, the black just sets in my hand and my pin is still where I want it when the arrow is traveling that way. It just sets there for me. So that's me. That's my experience. Uh, I've got an Excel Reostat side on there. Love that side. I have mine set up a little different. <clears throat> I don't see 
red or blue pins very well. I have five green pins on mine, and they're all point ten. Uh, I like small. I like small close, so I can really. Some guys like the bigger pin up close, but man, I I literally. I mean, I take it serious. I pick a spot. I pick a hair or tough a hair. I don't want that big pin covering up too much. And what I found with that Reostat sight, it is so bright. The fibers are so bright on that thing. I learned this the hard way. I was out practicing. I, I like to take shots right at close to dark, you know, like a real hunting situation. And mine would always be low. I mean, I'd be shooting great. In those last couple of minutes, my shots would be low. And that pin was so bright that, you know, because it looked so big right at that time, I'm almost holding low because I thought, well, I'm at the spot, but I was really low because it was so bright. And that was with a 19. So I went to a 10, a size 10, and that solved that issue. So I have five green tins. And everyone says, oh, you're going to get confused. Well, I've been using that setup now for a couple of years. And I don't. I mean, I just know, okay, 30, I need to be on the second pin. I'm not shooting the whitetails much over 30 anymore. I've just had too many duck or too many bad experiences. Whitetails are where I am, I mean, you know, my family hunts, I hunt, my employees hunt here. It's a lot of hunting pressure, and our deer are pretty scared at the sound of an arrow coming to them. So I'm not shooting much over 30 yards anymore. And that, that yeah. I shoot a, a, a blood sport arrow, and I love the micro, whatever brand arrow you're shooting, I love a micro shaft. I just get tremendous penetration. I, I love the micro shaft arrows. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, and I've said this, in several other episodes over the last couple of years, when it comes to these prime bows, uh, I am absolutely a fan. You know, you and I would both be the first to, you know, acknowledge that there's a lot of good bows out there. But prime, mm-hmm. and what I like, you know, as a editor of a bow hunting magazine, and I'm fortunate in that I usually get to shoot a variety of bows. You know, this year I've got. I've got a new Prime, I've got a new Hoyt, I've got a new Matthews, I've got a new Bowtech. So I've got at mm-hmm. least four new bows this year, and I like shooting the different bows, and I like the way that the manufacturers prod one another. You know, there's a saying that you and I would refer to regularly, a grant from Scripture about iron sharpening iron and, and how mm-hmm. you know, bas- mm-hmm. basically as friends, right, we can we can challenge one another and hold one another accountable and, and prod one another to become, you know, better people, better deer hunters, husbands, fathers, what have you. And in the, in the marketplace, in the consumer marketplace, manufacturers do that, not really because they want to help each other. They're actually trying to uh, get a competitive advantage over one another, but the end result is essentially the same in that as as various manufacturers achieve uh, improvements in technology or design, uh, ultimately the other manufacturers are going to have to respond to that in kind or else they're going to allow a competitor to maintain that advantage, right? And one of the things that, mm-hmm. Prime, that Prime has been so good at, and it started several years ago now with the Synergy, I think was the first bow model that they did. You talked about how steady those bows hold on target. And I believe that started uh, three years ago with the Synergy. And then after that was the Logic. And now is the Black Series. And all of those bows that I just mentioned incorporate that Synergy riser technology and, and Prime really hit on something tremendously valuable to, to us shooters there in that by moving the balance point of that 
bow right to the center of the grip where that bow rests against your hand, those bows without any stabilizers even added, just really want to hold in the middle of the target. So when you're at full draw and that bow's pushing into your hand and you're looking through your peep sight and you're watching your pen, they really are rock steady. And of course, uh, you and I would be familiar with the, the way that Prime demonstrated that, but they basically just added a laser pointer onto the riser and they had people draw the bow and, and aim as best as they could with these bows that have the Synergy riser technology and they compared that to a variety of other bows from different manufacturers and they really saw uh, a very significant and measurable reduction in the amount of movement that that Synergy bow uh, was doing at full draw. So, you know, when you talk about that, that's not just Grant Woods, you know, again, as you said, you know, promoting a product that you happen to have a business relationship with, that's something that uh, is, is a real benefit to uh, uh, whether it's a target shooter or a bow hunter. And, you know, I think that as validation of that, what you've seen is you've seen other manufacturers um, actually change their change their designs and they've moved they've moved weight distribution around on their bows they've moved grip position around on their bows to to essentially mimic what prime did so i love to see you know when when manufacturers push the envelope because ultimately over the course of several years it benefits everybody uh, regardless of which brand you shoot and so that's something that i've appreciated a lot about the primes and uh you combine that with the parallel cams and um it's just a it's just a really uh, forgiving system it's a really fun system to shoot and i've had a lot of a lot of success with it and so you know unless somebody else comes up with you know something great i i foresee myself you know remaining a prime shooter for for many years to come because i just appreciate the the amount of thought that goes into the way they put their bows together yeah i agree well said i agree i, I only have a stabilizer on my bow, I agree with everything you're saying. Hey, I don't know if you ever noticed this. If you got a front stabilizer, you can throw that bow over your shoulder if you're elk hunting or got a long hike to your whitetail stand, and it just sits there. You can hold that stabilizer in front of your shoulder, and it just sits there perfectly. And second, I think it's a little bit additional noise reduction. Primes tend to be pretty quiet, but it's a little bit additional noise reduction, and I'm all about shooting as quiet a setup as I can. What what kind of broadheads do you shoot, Grant? And, you know, do you try new ones very often or do you have something that you kind of go to for years and years and on end? You know, I used to float around a little bit and, and I shot the striker. Long before I ever worked with G5 Prime, I shot the striker for years. And if you're not familiar with the striker, it's a, a modular three blade, almost like a fixed blade, but you can replace the blades uh, and just had great success with it. And Prime kind of pushed me a little bit, G5, to try the dead meat. And, uh, and I'm more of a traditional type guy. I used to shoot a, a, black, actually a black Widow for years and years and years. And I said, ah, I don't want to do that. You know, no, they just, just try it for us. And, man, I got to tell you, I've killed elk, hogs, horse, deer, turkey. I've killed a ton of critters with the dead meat broadhead. I love that broadhead. Love it. And I shoot a relatively low poundage bow. Uh, especially for, you know, my, a guy, my size, I, I, this year, just to prove I could, I killed several hogs with the hogs are really tough. Even hundred hogs, they wallow, they get sand and mud and all kind of grit in their hair. And it just kills broadheads. And I killed several hogs 
with my bow set at 52 pounds with the dead meat broadhead. And I mean, I killed one large hog. It's on video and I heart shot it, but the angle, I kind of, I went through the very back of the shoulder into the heart and it jumped like a heart shot deer almost, which is funny to watch a hog do that and ran a circle. And the only reason I whipped out an arrow and took a second shot and it was running. So I just whipped it, the, the bigger target, the lungs, because it was headed towards a swamp and I did not want to trail that big hog after dark in the swamp, not necessarily for the hog, but the big gators I knew were in that area. Uh, but I mean, that thing just went down like a ton of bricks and 50 yards. It would have went down without the second arrow. Uh, so I've been really pleased with that. But this year, uh, because I'm pretty traditional, I'm thinking about switching back to the Montec, a solid three blade head. Uh, I just, you know, I just want to, I like heads that just perform no matter what. And, and I like sharpness. We all know sharpness is what bow hunters count on. There's a clotting hormone, thromboplastin. I can illustrate this real easy. You get a paper cut. You don't even know it. And you look down, your fingers bleed. It didn't hurt. You mash your finger with a hammer or a rock. It hurts like crazy, but it barely bleeds. That's because all mammals have thrombone plastin, the clotting hormone. So when there's trauma, the body says, oh, I got to stop the loss of blood. And it excretes a lot of this thromboplastin clotting hormone. Well, we all need a blood trail. So if you have a razor sharp broadhead, just like the solid 22, we talked about the first of this going through the skunk, you got a razor sharp broadhead. I, no one can talk to deer, but apparently they just feel a little push. They don't know what happened. They don't know it's got shot or anything and they won't run near as far and they bleed out much quicker. It's much more humane. If your broadhead's dull and some manufacturers just make dull heads. That's just a fact they do. And, and, and heads oxidize over time. You know, you've been carrying the head around your quiver for two years. Maybe it's your sixth arrow and you haven't shot that sixth arrow. Well, that broadhead may be getting a little dull just from the oxidation process. Even though you haven't shot it, it's just starting to that little microscopic edge is starting to break down. So you want, no matter what broadhead you shoot, you want it razor sharp and you will be much more successful at recovering game. There's a little science lesson on the science of bleeding out from Dr. Grant Woods, but <laughs> it is true, you know, and, and honestly, you know, one of the things that, as bow hunters, we know, you know, and unfortunately, right, there's a certain segment of the anti-hunting community that seems to feel that bow hunting is not only is all hunting barbaric, right, but that bow hunting is this particularly onerous activity because it's just so, you know, inhumane. And of course, those of us who are bow hunters know, and it's amazing, really, you watch a, a razor sharp broadhead double lung through an animal i don't care if it's a deer a bear uh you know whatever else you want to go out there and hunt yeah a big elk to literally watch that animal you know expire within 10 to 15 seconds is you know just it makes you have a greater appreciation for the term that we use, you know, is, you know, you're, you know, Grant Woods is the lifeblood of, of growing deer TV, you know, uh, so-and-so is the lifeblood of our organization. When, when they're talking about the lifeblood, that truly is your life. Because as soon as you 
depressurize those lungs and the oxygen no longer is delivered to the brain, man, it's over in a hurry. And to your point, and we've all seen it, you know, again, you talk about the trauma. How many deer have you killed over the years, Grant? And it's happened to, to all of us. If you've shot enough animals, you zip an arrow with a razor sharp broadhead on it through a deer's chest cavity and they jump and then they just stop and they look around and they're not even sure exactly what happened. And I'm convinced and I don't say this out of any motivation to justify what I do. I do not need your justification for my hunting. And, and uh, I'm not trying to tell you that we're not killing animals or deny that. We are taking life and it's serious. But I really think that a lot of times with those razor sharp broadheads, it, it kind of hurts for the moment. But as soon as that arrow's in and out, you know, in a, in a tenth of a second, they don't even know what happens. And I don't think a lot of times they even feel that much pain. And then 10 seconds later, they're literally dead and they, they never knew what hit them. I think the only thing they know is the sound of the bow going off. I mean, they feel a little thumping, but remember deer bump sticks and logs and stuff all the time. I mean, imagine we've all done this. You're walking into the stand and it's pitch dark. You bust a deer and it's, you hear it running and crashing. You hear it crashing through stuff. They're not picking their trail. They're just getting the heck out of Dallas. Uh, it, you know, when you think about hitting a stick at 20 miles an hour, that's got to hurt a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I think you make a great double lung, especially you slide it right between the ribs or something. Yeah. I think they're reacting to the sound of the shot more than they are the arrow, especially if it's razor sharp and it just, again, paper cut How many times have you, you know, you doggone it. We, it's a, cause I'm sitting here in old faded blue jeans right now. It's got a little grease stain on them, but you got to go to a meeting you put your khakis on and you got to take your presentation or whatever. And you get a paper cut. And you don't know it, and you touch your pants, and now you got a bloody spot in your pants. I have done this, folks. I, in a in a long a universe, long ago and far away, hardly no one knows this. I was a computer programmer. I graduated college right after President Carter, not being political at all, had been president. I'm just putting in a time frame. And interest rates were about eighteen percent. There were no jobs in wildlife, none. And I had a double degree in computer science and wildlife, so I got a job writing code for a phone company. I was a COBOL programmer for the older people in your audience. And man, I'd get a paper cut and you know, I'm, you know, I'm an outdoorsman. So I wouldn't, you know, I just wipe it on your pants and go on. Well, I've done that more than once. Well, you don't even know you got a paper cut, right? You, you're doing something else. I'm like, gosh, I got blood on my finger. I think that's kind of the same thing. Yeah. That's uh makes me think of a, elk hunt that I did years ago in Southern Colorado. And I actually had, it was it's, to this day, it's the coolest encounter that I've ever had in the wild with a bow in my hand and came upon these two big bull elk that were fighting and not just sparring, but I mean, they were in a absolute knockdown drag out fight like you'd see on the mutual of Omaha's wild kingdom back in the day. And, uh, that allowed me to literally run across open ground and get about 12 yards away from these two bulls and shoot one of them. And again, you know, you talk about how you run into a stick or in this case, you, you know, you got two bull elk basically whacking each other with antlers. I shot the bull and he never even stopped fighting with the other bull. And for about 10 or 15 seconds after I shot, while the air, while blood started to run down the side of his body, he can just continue to fight with that other bull and never even knew that anything happened. So, uh, 
I know, I know that that's the case. Um, but anyway, Grant, I, you know what? It's hard to believe it's over an hour now that we've been talking and I told you we wouldn't have any trouble filling the time and well, lo and behold, we filled it, my friend. So that just means we'll have to have you back again someday and we'll talk about more, but you've certainly given us all a lot to think about. And, um, if, if we're not doing it already, maybe 2020 needs to be the year that we get out there and improve some habitat to improve our bow hunting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I tell people at the end of every show, get outside and enjoy creation and take some time to be quiet and listen to the creator. Wow. I just feel like we got the official Grant Wood show close right there for Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio. That is so cool, man. And you're absolutely right. Oh, let's do this, Grant. Since you mentioned the creator and since you and I are both a part of this group, let's end with this. We saved possibly the very best for last. I want to invite everyone who listens to this show to get on Facebook and search up a a group called In Pursuit Challenge. There's another friend of Grant and I's, a gentleman by the name of Zeke Pfeiffer, a great bow hunter and a, a pastor in the state of Nebraska who wrote a devotional book called In Pursuit. It's a 90 day devotional book and Grant and I, along with Zeke and Bill Winky and some other folks are going through that right now. So if you have an interest in anything along those lines, Grant and I, I know, would love to have you be part of our group. And mm-hmm. we are we are sharing some of our thoughts uh, on a daily basis with people. And it's just really meant to be an encouragement to all of us and a way to have some closer connection with others, uh, particularly during this time of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, where people are, are in need of some, you know, opportunities to connect with people and have some relation. And, um, Please consider doing that, Grant. I hope you don't mind me bringing that up. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Join us. Join us, folks. And uh, Christian does a special thing every Sunday morning. He actually goes live. And I tune in. I love it. Christian, you're doing a great job. Well, I'm going to try and keep up the good work. And with that, we will say goodbye for now. But uh, always appreciate your time, Grant. Thanks so much. And I wish you and your family continued uh, health, happiness, and success in the field. Thank you, Christian. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhunting.com.